Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 343 with my guest, British therapist Louise M. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. Uh, it's barely a cave, and I'm barely a human being. That that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, the website for the show is mentalpod.com. Uh, Go there, check it out, fill out surveys. The surveys are a huge part of this show, uh, reading about the inner uh, and outer lives uh, of your experience. You, the listener, uh, is really a big, big part of this. So um, that's one way that you can you can help the show out. Um, this episode with, with Louise is interesting because I, and that's a pseudonym we use for her, um, I recorded her episode um, when I was in Britain, and it's it's interesting because it almost seems like this was aired intentionally as like a sister episode to the one with Cal from last week. There's a lot of similarities. I love when stuff like that happens. Um, monthly uh, donors uh, at the $5 or above level. Um, the raffle is on for uh, a three-night stay at the Biltmore Hotel and two weekend passes to L.A. PodFest. It's October 6th, 7th, and 8th. Uh, you would be responsible for your airfare. I wish I had that much money to uh, also um, raffle that off, but uh, right now I, I do not. Um, but it's a really nice hotel, and it's a great festival. Um, three days of uh, of podcasting. Uh, I'm going to be there doing a live podcast. I'll save you and... Uh, if you come with a friend, I'll save you both a seat right up front if you'd like, and I'd like to also take you to lunch. So if you're a Patreon uh, monthly donor at the $5 or more level, 
um, either reply to my Patreon post uh, or message me with your guess. Um, if you're more than a $5 a month donor, uh, you get one guess per every $5 a month you donate. So if you're a $15 a month donor, you would get three guesses, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a PayPal monthly donor, uh, because PayPal's interface is so fucked and horrible and outdated and they've rested on their laurels uh, and their monopoly, um, there is n- no way really to communicate with you. So if you happen to hear this and you're a PayPal donor um, at the $5 a month uh, or above level, um, email me at mentalpod at gmail.com with your uh, guess or guesses, depending on uh, what the level is that you donate monthly. And uh, again, that's uh, the Biltmore Hotel, October 6th, 7th, and 8th for LA PodFest. If you want to see the line of, of people, they're going to be at PodFest. It's really good. And the website is uh, lapodfest.com. And I'll put links to uh, to this stuff uh, up there. Um, thank you to those of you that came out to the shows in Oakland. They were really, really fun, and I I love getting to meet uh, listeners um, in in person and you know exchange hugs and um, it's just so nice to to um, interact with you non digitally <laughs> to just have eye contact with um, people that mean so much to me and I get the feeling that I mean a lot to to you as as well. Um, I've been really stressed out lately. I totally um, forgot about my therapy appointment. Um, in fact, now would be a good time <laughs> to uh, to uh, talk about our, our sponsor, uh, BetterHelp.com. It's not the first time that uh, I've spaced on my appointment with Donna. She's been very understanding. Um, but I, I love BetterHelp.com. Um, I've been using Donna as my online therapist for about a year now, and I couldn't be happier. Uh, one of the things that she's uh, having me do is find out what uh, what are the ways that I like to receive and give love because there's somebody came out with a thing called the languages of love a while back and in it they revealed that not everybody perceives love coming their way in the same way for some people compliments are the ultimate you know sign of affection for other people it's somebody doing nice things for them Uh, for another person it might be physical affection for another person it might be um that person being present and listening to to what you're saying, not being distracted, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so there, Donna had me take this test to find out what my uh, top three uh, love languages are. And my top one is somebody being present with me, paying attention uh, to what I'm saying and not being distracted, um, basically not being my dad. <laughs> um, physical affection is one of my top three. I love physical affection. And then um, helpful gestures is, is one of the top three as well. I'm, And the thing that I found interesting is that two of the things that I like the most, um, you know, being present with loved ones and, and, and them doing helpful gestures for me are the two hardest things for me to ask for. Um, asking people to do stuff with me and asking people 
to do things for me. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's more to, to delve into uh, having discovered that. But anyway, I love BetterHelp.com. Um, listeners who have tried it uh, are enjoying it and also believe that it's a it's a great um, what do you call it product service. Um, anyway, go to BetterHelp.com/mental. And uh, make sure you include the slash mental, then they'll know you came from the podcast. Uh, and you just uh, complete a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor. And you can experience a free week of uh, counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you have to be over 18. And I will put a link to that uh, on the show notes for this uh, this episode. Um, so I was saying that I've been a little bit stressed uh, lately. Um, I have to get out of this apartment that I'm in because they're not renewing my lease um, on the 24th. And it's up in the air as to where I'm going to live right now. I'm trying to get into a house, which is very exciting. Um, but there's a lot of contingencies on that. So I'm not going to have a place to live for about two weeks. Uh, so I'll just be kind of maybe... Um, shuffling from friend to friend or maybe a hotel. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm kind of stressed out about that because the place that I might possibly live in, I'm really excited about. Um, but it's a lot of money for where I'm at financially. Um, so there's a part of my brain that's telling me, you know, you're so full of yourself thinking that you deserve to live in a place like this. You know, you're blah, 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 blah. Um, the divorce settlement with my wife is, um, you know, it's moving along, but it's just, it's so painful sometimes, um, having to, um, just take care of all the details of that, um, of that stuff. Um, I'm missing Herbert, uh, for those of you that are new listeners, he was our dog of, uh, of 12 years that, uh, that, uh, <laughs> do I use the word passed away with a dog? He was a little fella that shuffled off his mortal coil, um, and he was my little guy, and I miss him so bad. And I'm so touched that you guys are buying the St. Herbert t-shirt. Uh, that is so awesome, and I cannot wait until I bump into one of you wearing a St. Herbert t-shirt. If, uh, As I've said before, I think I might cry if I see somebody uh, wearing that Um and I've been feeling sad when I go see uh, Ivy. That's our 14-year-old dog that is still with us. And she was always, you know how dogs will have like a favorite um, person in the couple? Uh, like Herbert's favorite was uh, my ex-wife, Carla, and Ivy's favorite was me. But I don't live at the house where Ivy is anymore. So I only get to see her about five times a week. And... um and it's just sad when I when I go there because I feel guilty. I feel like, um, I don't know. It's hard to put into words, but I can't imagine what that has got to be like with a kid when you're divorced and you. Um, but I guess with a kid, you can tell them why. With Ivy, I think the pain is that I can't tell her why I'm not there as much. Why I only get to see her maybe fifteen minutes a a, a day. But um, so that's kind of what's been uh, been going on. But ultimately, I'm so grateful that I'm sober, that I'm able to do something I love for a living, 
that I'm using getting kicked out of my apartment to experience living in a place that gets me out of my comfort zone and is potentially very exciting. Um, so they're ultimately, these are all quality problems, and that's important for, for me to remember. Um, I want to read two quick surveys for you guys. This first one is an awfulsome moment filled out by Muffkin. And uh, she writes, I was talking with my husband the other night, and I don't know how the subject of my violent ex came up. The semester after I got a legal protective order against my ex, um, after he tried to kill me, he started going after my closest friends and was actively trying to get a gun. My friends were all really supportive about it and made sure that someone always knew where I was, and if I were on campus, I was never alone. It was scary as hell, and by some miracle, I managed to pass both organic chemistry and physics and not be murdered. Oh, my God. The awfulsome moments that you guys submit are so fantastic. Um, for those of you that are new, uh, as you probably guessed, an awfulsome moment is something that was awful when it happened. But in hindsight, there's something about it that makes you um, have more more complicated feelings about it. Usually it's something that's funny or turned out to be good or whatever. Uh, and then this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Anon. And she writes, firstly, I should give some information about my mother. She's been married twice and pregnant twice. I am an only child, and she was a high school biology teacher for many years. She and my father divorced when I was four, and except for a few months of dating her deceased best friend's widower, there were no men in her life from then on. This story happened when she was well past menopause. When I was in college, my mother told me that she wanted a sex toy for herself, but she was too ashamed to go to a store and get one for herself, and she didn't know how the internet worked, so she couldn't order one online. Uh, by then, I was well aware that my mother had no concept of sexual boundaries, so when I got over the shock, I found her a paper catalog from a local company that catered specifically to older single women. I made it clear that I did not want to know anything beyond that point. Months passed. My mother said she was too afraid to look at the catalog, afraid of what I'll never know. More months passed. She told me that she finally looked in the catalog, but was afraid that if she contacted the store, they would think she was a pervert. Another few months passed, and during one of my last visits, before cutting contact, she proudly announced that she had made herself a dildo out of Sculpey a polymer clay that you mold by hand and then bake in a standard domestic oven. Not only is Sculpey unsafe to even eat off of, her oven is a hundred years old and I don't know if it's been cleaned at all during the last 30. I begged her to get rid of it and buy one that's actually made for internal use, but she refused. I asked her to at least use condoms, but she rolled her eyes and snapped, it's not going to get me pregnant. Finally, she told me that she used a Ziploc bag for protection. And knowing her, it was probably the same Ziploc bag every time. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. 
My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akinzaya in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with Louise M., who I've known for uh, for a while. Um, you're a therapist. I am. Based here in England, and we're using a pseudonym for you so you can share uh, more freely, mm-hmm. uh, not only about your professional experience, but uh, about your personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to um, talking about you as a therapist um, and the therapy in general here in the UK. Let's talk about you personally. You're 41? I am. 41 yep. years old. And you've been a therapist for how long? Um, I've been qualified for a year and a couple of months, but I've uh, worked in therapy in varying different roles for 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. What were the other roles other than uh, um, therapist? I was working as a, a psychological well-being practitioner. I've worked as a, an assistant psychologist um, in occupational therapy or within mental health settings. Okay. Yeah. Uh, talk about your childhood. Okay. What would you like to know? <laughs> uh, give a kind of a broad picture of okay. uh, what the emotional temperature of the house was like Mm -hmm. any things moments that you went through inside your house or outside your house Mm -hmm. that you think left an impression on you uh Mm -hmm. healthy or unhealthy okay um probably growing up was really quite happy quite good what i remember um it was probably when i was about seven or eight years old that my mum um developed a bit of a drinking habit a drinking problem and um that used to be the first time i ever experienced it is we'd gone to some friends um mum does friends and mum and dad got quite drunk and it was all fine but then they actually had a fight they had like a physical fight and i'd never seen anything like that before in my life and i think it was the first time it really kind of became apparent to me that something unusual was going on um i think from that moment onwards was the start of being quite scared about kind of people drinking and the way that they behaved and stuff because it seemed to be like a spiral from then on with my mum um so would that, would that also uh, apply to uh, anxiety about conflict uh yes it probably would as well actually um before mm. i was due to go to i was living in germany at the time and before i was supposed to be going to this boarding school i got quite nervous and got quite upset by it and i was just with me and my mum and um she asked me I, I asked her a few questions about kind of um the headmaster at the school and whether he'd be living in the same area as um as the, the the children and she was like oh that's a bit of a strange question to ask and she was like are you okay is there anything you want to talk to me about so it was when um it was the first time i ever disclosed i must have been about 
10, nearly 11, uh, before going, well, the plans were to go off to this bo- other boarding school, I disclosed to my mum an experience that I'd had when I went to a boarding school when I was younger. Um, and that was the first time I disclosed uh, that information, um, which was okay. And obviously my mum was really upset by it, but it kind what of... What do you mean, which was okay? It was okay because it was um, talking about uh, sexual assault by... Uh, a, 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 a headmaster from no, a different school. What was okay mean? about what? Talking about it. Yeah. It was okay with your mom. No, it was okay to talk about it. I didn't. I hadn't told anyone about it, but it was okay to talk about it. And it, I don't. I think it felt a release to talk about I it. I it think was safe to share. Safe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My mom was okay with it. God no, no she was because heartbroken. it sounded like you were saying you know, <laughs> the abuse was That's okay. Fine. <laughs> no. 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 It's no. all part of being a child. Yeah. Of course. Um, no, no, no. She she was very upset by it. Very. I mean, I think actually, to be fair, thinking back now, I'd never really made this connection before. But I think actually, the alcohol begin began to spiral after that. Actually, thinking about it now, I think that fight that my mum and dad had was after I told them. Mm. So I don't know whether I've never even made that connection before. I don't actually know whether that was what kind of but I think it was the beginning of the end kind of for my mum really and I think that's when she did start drinking and I've not really made those connections before I think I've always been quite angry at my parents for sort of sending me to a boarding school at a young age and for it happening and all that you know abuse happening Um, and I think I'm quite angry with them because nothing was done at the time about it as well you know they did try to do something about it but my dad was kind of told that it was best just to not make a fuss and uh, which is horrendous isn't it so my my poor dad did as much as he could um but i think years later when i actually was able to kind of try and get some justice around it my dad was brilliant he was i managed to get it to court and everything he was there every day um supporting me and stuff so i think for him and then his further work going to work as a police officer and solving a lot of these these kind of crimes um I think really helped, probably helped him therapeutically to mm. kind of come to terms with or, or somehow come to terms with guilt or whatever he was feeling as well. No, that makes sense. does make sense, actually, yeah. My mum's never been able to handle it, and even now when I sort of... Because I've had therapy t- only in the last sort of few years to kind of work through this, I've been in denial for a very long time about how much it's affected me, even though I know now that actually it's had an impact on everything. Um, My mum is still a bit reticent to kind of talk about it because I think she holds so much guilt about it. That's too bad. I have had moments with her recently where I have made a bit of a breakthrough, but she, she tends to kind of be a bit of a victim herself and she will kind of uh, she'll she'll kind of bring it back onto her so if i try and bring something up it's like oh don't make me feel guilty oh don't say that because don't make me feel more guilty than i already feel and i think fucking hell mum it's, <laughs> it's not about you is, I, is yeah. she still uh drinking problematically N- not no 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 no. In, no thank god in the last sort of 10 years she's actually managed to kind of sort it out um it used to be 
I never knew if I was going to visit my parents. I didn't know what state my mum was going to be in and I didn't know, you know, how she was going to react and I'd always be quite nervous about kind of taking any friends back or, you know, boyfriend back or anything like that because I thought, God, if she's drunk, will she say something? And I remember the first time I now husband met her, she was drunk mm-hmm. <laughs> and, she, and she likened him to this... Um, this TV chef, let's say, and this TV chef's quite a strange-looking guy that my husband doesn't look anything like at all. I don't know why she said it. So my husband retorted and said that she was like someone off this um, EastEnders soap opera. <laughs> and it was a real insult, but I was like, yes. I was like, good retort. And then she was kind of insecure about that for ages. But, you know, I never knew what to expect. It's very much walking on eggshells with my mum and it's such a shame because she is a really really nice person she's a lovely person but she's so insecure and so hasn't dealt with her own shit and i don't think she's willing to either and and it seems like those are the type of the people mm. that usually like their blunt coping mechanism is narcissism that, that they just they're in such a low level survival mode yeah. that they feel like they there's something to figure out mm. but it's in a lot of ways, it's like a view of the world in themselves that mm-hmm. um, uh, y- you're not going to get through intellectually, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like maybe only through vulnerability and human yeah. connection and yeah. compassion mm-hmm. and self-care mm-hmm. and all these other concepts that yeah. are it seem it seems like involve work and peeling layers yeah, away as definitely. opposed to an epiphany that suddenly yeah. makes it uh, okay. I think, I think becoming a therapist and having that kind of professionalism um, has probably worked really well with my mum because I think she it, she is more open than she ever has been and she's more in touch with things that are going on. She still needs to go and have therapy and she still hasn't taken that leap but I think she yeah she's definitely made changes and she does drink and now my dad drinks with her but they my dad kind of keeps a level so they'll have a bottle of wine together and they're fine rather than her drinking on her own and then kind of going to the depths of depression and also she's not a very nice drunk she's quite One nasty of those, the switch flips yeah and you see it i oh i used to see it in her eyes like just like this kind of glaze over in her eyes and you just think oh my god she's gonna be really mean and she would she says some nasty stuff when she's been drunk well there is something uh nice about uh, when somebody drunk says something mean to you that they're also looking through you <laughs> Yes, <laughs> true. Because it's never really eye contact with it's like, you. It's like they're looking at somebody standing 10 feet behind you yeah, when, when they're doing it. Definitely. Um, g- going back to the, the trauma of the mm-hmm. thing with the um, the headmaster, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would like to share about it that um, you used to look at differently mm-hmm. that through processing it you now mm-hmm. look at it in a, in, in a different way in a healthier way now how um my hope is that somebody mm-hmm. hearing this who has experienced something mm-hmm. similar will be dis- have some myth about their experience dispelled mm-hmm. okay. um or they're minimizing of it, mm. or what, whatever. Yeah. As comfortable yeah. as you are sharing details, I don't want to push you to, to yeah, yeah, share of course. details. Of course. I mean, I kind of, I think something that I've picked up through the podcast mm. has been really, really helpful for me, which I hope 
people do get is this idea that we do minimize our trauma okay if i spent a long long time thinking oh well worse things have happened to other people what am i complaining about you know like it's a contest exactly which is ridiculous so i think for a long long time um i was in this kind of war about kind of how much it affected me or how much i thought it hadn't affected me and the impact it was having and i was thinking well you know i wasn't raped or i wasn't kind of tortured or i wasn't you know subjected to ongoing it was an isolated incident but it still has a massive impact on your life and it's completely influenced every aspect of my life um and we'll get i'd like yeah, to, yeah. you to follow up and, and share mm. what that is and i just wanted to interject because i think the mm. thing that we forget is we go into a, a state of going into a shell inside mm-hmm. ourselves when it's happening mm-hmm. and so we don't recall yeah a feeling of mm-hmm. uh you know mm-hmm. um wanting to burst into tears we yeah. we kind of go into a state of numbness yeah yeah uh, mm-hmm. and and so then we don't recall any really really intense feelings yeah. i remember when it happened i was incredibly confused and knew from i was six years old and i knew from that age this is this is a bit weird this is not something that, that is supposed to happen so I was sharing a room with uh, another girl and um and when after it happened I'd kind of like oh my god what the hell was that and I and she was awake and she was terrified and I spoke to her and then she told me that it happened to her and several of the other of the girls in in the boarding house as well um and I guess for my six-year-old self and this therapy really helped me with this actually is I'm really quite proud of my six-year-old self um because I made it my mission then to stop him and I think I stopped him temporarily because um, he used to carry this big torch okay to get around the darkened rooms at night it's all very sinister and very horrible um, and I located like in a castle or something it, it was in a very it's like a kind of um, it's a very very posh well-to-do school it was like a big manor house type thing um and um where they lived the the headmaster and headmistress um lived in this house and the boarding house was in this house as well so it was a very grand very big you know you kind of drove up this big drive and there was like pillars you know columns and stuff loads of grounds beautiful place beautiful um and it was kind of a prep school so kind of british kind of preparatory school to then go on to your kind of eaten and all those kind of posh things so it was originally a boys school and they just started making it co-ed a couple of years before i went there so there wasn't many girls there at all um and yeah he used to go around with his torch and stuff so i located it and with a couple of friends we managed to get it off this very very high cupboard imagine we're any tiny children and and i and we, and we broke it wow. <laughs> and he didn't come near me again so i kind of like i'm on to you you fucker wow. <laughs> yeah wow. and as it transpired years later i'm slightly going off but as he transpired years later he wrote about me in his diary as well and wrote about me as being a troublesome individual how something. did you come to find that out through the court case oh, um, so somebody did step forward uh, i did oh <laughs> yeah years later yeah when i was 18 a new law was part my dad had just become a police officer and he came home one day and he was like oh there's a new law has been passed in britain or uk um that you can report historical 
uh, sex crimes and um, and basically press charges. So I was like, okay. And round about this time as well, an article had come out in a, a national paper about this particular school, and there was um, it was no not sexual abuse, but more physical abuse. I mean, at the time I went there, they still had like. Um, they call it corporal punishment. Mm -hmm. Corporal punishment. Yep. Yeah, they yep. still kind of like had the cane. They'd mm -hmm. hit boys with the cane and the slipper for girls. It never happened to me, but I do know people it happened to. And you're talking about really young kids here. You know, you're talking six to well, it's preparatory school, so it would be six to eleven. So you're talking about little kids that are being beaten with, you know canes and slippers and whatnot. Um, so they talked about this physical abuse that had been going on there. Someone had reported that. So I wrote to the paper and just said, oh, well, I've got a bit of a story to tell. And blah, blah, blah. Two days later, I have two police people <laughs> turn up. I'm like, fuck. Mm. And they came in and they were amazing and took statements and stuff. And then I had to give a few names of people. Um, I kind of have regrets about that in a way. And because basically he got found not guilty. Had he been found guilty, then it'd be a different story. But a couple of people a, a girl and a boy brother and sister who it happened to they'd never told their parents so of course it opened up a big can of worms for for them and i don't know how they are i never kept in contact with them because you had given their names I'd had, yeah, yeah i gave their names um and you regret doing that i do in a way because for what you know they had to kind of i know it sounds a bit kind of weird now but they kind of it all came out but they didn't get any kind of good resolution to it and I, f I feel guilty i felt guilty about that for years did they resent you for uh, giving their names i don't think so no okay. i think you know they they didn't seem to they were quite happy and quite positive about going ahead and the thing is the, the court case itself was it seemed like it was going really well you know it seemed like halfway through it was going really well and then something really odd came out um the guy who the guy who was kind of supporting us he said um he came up to me and said like are you and your dad like planning to go to america or been to america and i'm like no, like that and i think they were trying to concoct come some kind of story i don't know why america was involved about my dad and i trying to do this for compensation or something it was like kind of obviously defamation to character um so that was all a bit weird some weird stuff was going on who, who approached you with that question um one of the, the defender no 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 one the team that was working for me they were obviously they'd picked up on something or something i'd asked them i never know to this day what that was about it was really mm. odd i don't know whether they were just trying to yeah turn me mm. into kind of some crazy kid that was trying to get money or something i know why would the people working for you no they weren't but they were trying to get the information saying the defense was getting that if that makes sense oh, yeah they they talked to me asked me about it i see because they knew the defense was going to go something. down this line of questioning yeah. and so they wanted to be as informed as they could exactly another thing as well is there was um two headmasters at this school one obviously the perpetrator and then this other guy who was all, he was all right and he was there at court and he actually came and apologized to one of the people um i wasn't there at the time but he apologized to one of the boys that i'd kind of put brought forward and then that caused a load of chaos as well because he wasn't supposed to speak to us or something like that and the fact that he'd apologized was almost kind of inferring that he knew the guy was guilty and it all came out they never brought this into court that apparently the perpetrator had got the other one to burn all his diaries that's going back to the diaries that's mm -hmm. how i found out these diaries had once existed and these diaries sick man had 
basically recorded all the stuff that he'd been involved in and what he'd done and everything but he got the guy to burn it and this guy apparently his other headmaster suffered from alcoholism for a very long time and i think he was yeah struggling with but, the guilt. but he he mm-hmm. uh, he was just a uh collaborator not a not a per- yeah he wasn't yeah. involved in it not at that all. that's any no, better no. but he yeah. knew about it and he covered up for him but i think he suffered greatly for what he did yeah you know and before we get to how we mm-hmm. you feel it's affected you today are there any ways that you had viewed it previously mm-hmm. that you view it differently now? Um, I felt a lot of shame about it, a hell of a lot of shame. I was really embarrassed by it. I didn't want to be defined by that. And I thought that if I told people that that's all they'd see, they'd, they'd see me as this person that um, at a young age was sexually assaulted by this. And, you know, these horror stories you read. So I was very embarrassed by it. Didn't want anyone to know. Kept it to myself for years and years. Um, did open up to a couple of friends, but it took me... 30 years I think to actually talk about it but I think I've been to therapy about three or four times but never kind of had the courage to kind of go through until about two three years about three years ago when I actually did it what I learned now from it it's nothing to be embarrassed about and nothing to be ashamed of and it wasn't my fault because I think you do I knew it wasn't my fault at six years old I knew it was wrong but there was something about me holding that shame and holding that kind of embarrassment about it as well um, but I think differently about that now definitely definitely feel differently about that and um, I used to one thing I used to hold as well is a lot of um, wanting to take revenge as well I used to have a lot of um, kind of fantasies I, I guess about kind of torturing and hurting this person which I used to be very embarrassed about that but I feel okay with that now so, it's <laughs> so, so common it's really, so common oh yeah. I read it in the surveys all yeah. the time and it's the just time. the stuff, and I kind of you know, used to go through my head of what I would do to that guy to, you know, get that revenge and do stuff. Do you want to share anything? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Maybe off record. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, any other? Uh, so how do you feel it's changed you, or do you want to talk about um, an, another event before you talk about how you've been changed? Um, I don't mind. I'm. I don't mind. Well, whichever you like. Um, talk about other events if you want. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, relating to that or or anything, help me out a little bit. <laughs> any any events uh, you'd like to share that you feel left a mark on who you are today or things that you've struggled with. Um. Okay, well, I still have very, very mixed feelings about an experience I had at the same time, okay? Um, and I guess when I've, when I've talked about it, which is very rarely, um, it kind of... I guess it is another form of abuse, but I still, in my head, don't feel like it was abuse. I feel like it was consensual. But at that same age, and I think this was... Right, let me kind of rewind slightly... One thing I used to feel really angry about is this guy, his perpetrator, 
introduced me and many other young people into sexuality okay at an age where it really isn't something that would be kind of occurring you know so there was and, and certainly not with the innocent sexuality that children it, have yeah exactly children can be sexual but of course, not of course not in yeah. the way an adult yeah, is exactly and of course there's always experimentation and all that right. kind of stuff but there was certainly i was suddenly in i was suddenly aware of sexual arousal okay um and we used to experiment with each other obviously my peers and stuff like that but there was this one particular girl who was a bit older she must have been about 11 or 12 i guess she was like um one of the old ones in school and we used to she used to take me off you know and it was all really nice and we'd go off into this meadow and and basically um fall around and I don't have any regrets about it or any embarrassment about it at all. In fact, I, I kind of look at it as a fond memory. But then I think about it now and think, is that really wrong for me to have a fond memory about it? And it was she in turn abusing because of maybe, I don't know whether she was abused by him, but she probably was. I think most of the kids there, I mean, he did it for a long time over a period of 25 years. So whether that was because she'd been opened up to her sexuality and she was now acting that out mm. with someone else or whether it would have been something that would have happened anyway and i guess i'll never know that you know i'll never know whether it would have happened just as an experimentation between two girls well you, uh, my take on it is it might have happened between mm-hmm. two girls close in age yeah but, but an 11 year old and a six-year-old yeah um that that to me um i know that that part doesn't feel the same to me as, yeah. as two children of uh, same age. near age or yeah. near yeah, age yeah. there's a big difference we, we, because she, she was mature she, as well i remember physically. her being physically and mentally mature as well um i always felt safe with her but i can in a way i kind of think now i've kind of thought about that and process i've almost kind of turned what i thought was an okay memory into something that is probably wrong and i've got really mixed feelings about that so it's quite hard for me to kind of i don't know am i weird for having a weird for thinking it was a nice memory and where it's actually probably an abusive memory what you know i think that's an um, no i don't think it's weird at all i think that highlights the complexity of sexual abuse because sometimes mm-hmm. there can be pleasure sometimes it it was the only time mm-hmm. we received gentleness yeah and yeah there was this um mm-hmm. bad th- thing yeah. wrapped up in it mm-hmm. but there was also um something in it that mm-hmm. we felt in a weird way mm-hmm. seen mm-hmm. like the kid next door mm-hmm. who was four years older than me he had the body mm-hmm. of a man i was mm-hmm. 11 mm-hmm. and i liked the attention mm-hmm. and i stopped it after about mm-hmm. you know 20 seconds but mm-hmm. it it um i i i often kind of brush it mm-hmm. aside but that is that it's is a still, difference yeah that is a difference mm-hmm. and and i don't harbor any hatred towards mm-hmm. him because he was mm-hmm. 15 yeah he had the uh, the body of an adult but mm-hmm. he he i'm mm-hmm. i'm sure abuse was going on yeah in yeah. his mm-hmm. in his house yeah and and i mm-hmm. guess the thing i wanted to highlight is to separate mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. culpability yeah. from processing our feelings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think also... At least temporarily yeah. to process the feelings. And I think it's weird. I think reflecting now on it makes me wonder whether I was I welcomed that because of what I'd experienced that I didn't welcome. You know, the, the sexual assault from someone who was in a position of authority, a position who was looking after us and abused that. And I guess that was kind of something that wasn't consensual. You know, that wasn't, I didn't ask for, I didn't, you know, it was it was done completely out of my control. Yet this other thing with a girl always felt like it was more in control, yet it probably wasn't. But she was kind, she was gentle. So I guess there's a paradox there, and I guess it's kind of abuse regardless but there's almost kind of a different take on it or a different way way of it as well yeah i almost wish there was a different word when it's child on child other than abuse because it it seems to to make the child culpable yeah and you know i don't know hurt would that be another uh, word i I don't know because i get so many emails from people who hate themselves to this Mm -hmm. day because they did something with another child yeah. um and it it's it, it just breaks my heart yeah. to see people hating themselves mm-hmm. and um see I, I guess i won't i'll never know this but i guess i wonder what she thinks i wonder if she thinks back you know like some of the people that you've talked to in terms of kind of does she feel guilty about it does she feel like she's hurt me or hurt my life or something i guess i'll never know that but i, I hope she doesn't I hope i've she doesn't. never read a survey mm-hmm. or it's been very few and far between mm-hmm. where the person recounted mm-hmm. them perpetrating that oh, on okay. somebody else yeah where they could see that they were mm-hmm. just a child mm-hmm. and that and that the real abuser was the was the adult that introduced that yeah to yeah. somebody who didn't understand yeah of course what it was i've never yeah. read so mm-hmm. like i'd say 99 percent mm-hmm. of the pe- people who surveys i've read hate themselves because yeah. of because of because that. of that and i guess seeing it through adult eyes as well i guess this is something that therapy has taught me as well is viewing people whether we view things between from our adult perspective or whether we're viewing it from the child perspective and i found very very helpful in and very heartbreaking as well was reconnecting with my six-year-old self and i think that's a really amazing therapeutic technique of actually being able to go back into that moment and talking to and i spent a lot of time outside of therapy reconnecting with that child and what i got out of it was just amazing it was awful going through it it was really upsetting but i kind of I, yeah, I, I feel. I feel. Despite what happened to that six-year-old child, I feel proud of that six-year-old child for dealing with it in the way that they dealt with it. Well, where I dealt with it, yeah. How did you reconnect with? Um, what through therapy? Um, yeah, but specifically, how did you reconnect with that kid to start to heal? I guess your inner kid talking talking and just kind of nurturing and giving love to and kind like, of embracing. Like, how, like how specifically how specific oh God, it's been a few like years would you talk to a picture of yourself would you no, imagine more, more kind of internally well in therapy i guess i would uh, the the therapist would encourage me to have a conversation with you right. know like an empty chair kind of right that's what i would idea want, right? yeah um so in therapy they have the empty chair where you can kind of talk to um i guess it was it was like that really it was quite it was very informal structure it wasn't a structured type of therapy it was very kind of person uh, client-centered person-centered um 
so I was kind of doing most of the talking um but she would encourage me to kind of connect and and kind of you know give love nurture and and I did and it really helped yeah what kind of feelings did that bring up sadness sadness yeah oh I I cried I cried a lot I I felt so sorry for that little six-year-old and you know I can remember being six like I think you know that it was it was such a defining moment for me because I became aware of the world at that age prior to that and I look at I look at photos I've got this photograph a year before I went to that school and I look at how happy I looked and how kind of like my how intelligent I was how you know and I do feel like anger and bitterness that that was taken away from me I feel angry and bitter that I was kind of introduced to sexuality in that those terms um and and also because I was so young as well I I don't really know a life without it and that pisses me off that kind of that used to really get to I'm a lot more comfortable with that now but for many many years I just hated the fact that that was me and that defined me but I know now it doesn't define me but you know I hated the fact that I never really had a life before it because I was so young how do you think it has affected you those events oh gosh um the headmaster um I think I was okay up until (laughs) I think I think I was okay up until I got to about 16 um and I started taking drugs and drinking and kind of getting into the music scene. I'm just going to oh, adjust okay. your microphone yeah. just a little bit. We're getting we're getting some uh, okay some plosives. Go okay. ahead. Okay, and um, getting into kind of drugs and boys and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of went off the rails a little bit, but I was having so much fun. And I think what I would say as a complete direct result was promiscuity, definitely. Um, and you being a therapist know how textbook that is. Exactly, exactly. And it, and it's only it's probably only now that I can really reflect back and not be embarrassed and not be ashamed of my kind of promiscuous past. Um, I'm a lot more open about it now. You know, I think... I don't think I I don't think I live a lie or I have lived a lie but I think you know some people probably think that I'm more good <laughs> than I have been and I kind of was quite happy to portray that but now I'm quite open I can be quite open about you know what kind of life I've led but definitely promiscuity um I think then obviously when I was 18 and took it to court I did go off the rails completely for about a year I don't really remember lots of drinking lots of alcohol lots of sex lots of risk-taking behaviors disappearing for weekends on end not telling my parents them being absolutely devastated my dad driving around (laughs) trying to find me um yeah I've apologized to them since (laughs) but yeah it was really really tough and and, and I'm also saying that for you that that you were in so much pain so much pain it was awful I just I had no self-respect at all I was my finger was firmly on that self-destruct button I'd been re-traumatized you know from the initial happening and then being able to kind of bring it to justice and then it not working out I and being called a oh my god being called a liar in court you know vulnerable 18 year old and being told that I'm lying I mean it would never happen now you know if I brought charges now then it would, would have been a very different story but back you know when how does that person live, live with, with themselves, themselves yeah. how do they I don't know 
have no idea. I mean... Because I, I understand that the person that perpetrated it is sick. Mm-hmm. But it almost... The person calling you a liar, I suppose they're sick as well, mm-hmm. but it seems mm-hmm. like their brain isn't clouded by some type of compulsive addiction mm-hmm. um, that it's just like not giving a fuck. I know. And yeah, the perpetrator doesn't give a fuck either, yeah. but it mm-hmm. it's like they're fighting some type of monster within them where this person just, mm. uh, I don't know. I, I, shocking. It's shocking. Very shocking. Um, so how do you think it has affected your view of... Mm. Uh, the world obviously that it's not a safe place mm. that um very suspicious of men older older men i well i'm well it's weird i guess my counterbalance to that was to be i don't want to call myself a slag because i guess men always get the stud and the women get slagged don't they or whatever but i was like a guy i was like a bloke in terms of my control over men and i would use and dump and whatever and i kind of wouldn't commit to anyone and that was my way of getting power i believe now over men because of that what had happened to me so i thought if i get in there first no one else is gonna hurt Mm -hmm. me or, or cause me pain as well um, yeah, if I'm an object to the opposite sex. Exactly. You know, it amazes me, actually, that I did finally settle down and had a long-term relationship. And I do I'll always cherish that person, you know, for kind of taking me away from my destructive kind of lifestyle. Mm. Um, or at least containing it, because we still did a lot of drugs and drink. Mm. <laughs> but it was contained, and I felt safe with that person. Um, and I think I dread to think, had I not met my ex very good friend i i dread to think where i would have ended up you know i i don't know if i'd be here i really don't but but i am and i've got to focus on that i'm kind of shocked uh, that was it without any therapy that you just gravitated towards a intimate relationship because that's that's kind of sh- that's kind of shocking. That's that's pretty atypical, mm. isn't it? Mm. I know it's i don't know how that happened. I really don't. I think I know if we say the universe works in mysterious ways, this person who is very dear to me came into my life at the right time and saved me from myself and gave me exactly what I needed. And I I wouldn't, (laughs) I'd probably say it probably wasn't the most healthiest relationship sexually, to be honest. But um, are are you comfortable sharing in uh, what way it wasn't? There was, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Um, thinking back now, I think um, I don't know how to how to sort of say it really, but um, there was a lot of drug taking and a lot of sex and a lot of pornography and a lot of role playing, a lot of fantasies and stuff, mm-hmm. and a lot of kind of acting out certain things, uh, which I do kind of slightly feel about now, and I certainly don't want that kind of sex sexual relationship now or not all the time but it seemed to be i think this is the only bad thing about our relationship really was that our sex had to be at a certain level and i think it's like well i guess it's like addiction isn't it you know we could only get off on pushing the boundaries pushing the boundaries really high stimulation yeah yeah to to a point where you know we're not just making love we're having mad 
brought to us sex you know and, and it's kind of like the, the love went out of that so i kind of think you know it perhaps wasn't as healthy as it could have been um and are, are, are there hold that thought for one second are there relationships where people can occasionally hmm. indulge in that and also have yeah, intimacy i think so definitely i certainly okay. have that now in my relationship yeah oh, um not to the extent of what i've what i've done before but i feel like you can get wild yeah but also kind of be have the love making yes. as well which so is nice. not as an escape yeah. more as just a uh as fun yeah <laughs> as an occasional dessert exactly i like to think of it <laughs> as a bananas foster <laughs> yes <laughs> Gee, I wonder why I picked the shape of a banana. I have no idea. <laughs> um, was there? What was your thought that you were uh, about to finish? Before? I can't remember. Um, we were talking about engaging uh, in it as an addition uh, to yes. something. Uh, yeah, something that's more more healthy. But I guess. Um, so I guess my ex took me away from the self-destructive thing, but contained it. So I still kind of did all the wild things that I was doing, but I was doing it within a relationship. So I think I see. So instead of a bunch of anonymous partners, exactly, it was exactly. Yeah. So I wasn't necessarily recovering, I guess, yeah. but it was contained. Yeah. You were heading. You were going in the right direction, at yeah. least. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, let's talk about it. any other seminal moments that you'd like to um, share. There's probably millions, but okay. <laughs> I'm not sure at the moment. Um, well, because you're under a time crunch mm. to catch a train, mm. let's get into um, you talking about your specialty mm-hmm. as a therapist here in, in the UK mm-hmm. and um, the health system here. I've, mm-hmm. I've received so many emails from people in the UK who can only get five or six mm-hmm, mm-hmm. therapy visits yeah. and and they feel pretty hopeless yeah. uh, about it mm-hmm. and it, you and I were talking before we yeah. started recording and you have uh, some suggestions mm-hmm. for what they might do mm-hmm. to be able to get more yeah. sessions why that's done mm-hmm. etc I mean the organization that I work for does have a, a particular level of different interventions and different types of therapy for people and because it's a short-term therapy um, there'll be it depending unfortunately it's kind of gauged by a questionnaire scoring system so if you score on an anxiety scale and a depression scale um, between a certain amount on, on that scale you will be given one type of low intensity therapy if you score higher you'll be given like a more high intensity um therapy there are always exceptions to the rule if there's specific anxiety disorders we might then use a measure that would capture that so some of the people that maybe scoring quite lowly would get an opportunity to have more in-depth therapy um no, like for instance what would a component be that bypasses the um well the the, the questionnaires measure generalized anxiety and depression okay but say if someone's kind of not really scoring all that but they're health anxious we'd have a specific measure that would score and if as long as they were kind of above a certain kind of caseness if you like a certain um cutoff point then they would be able to have the more intense therapy we do have assessments very good assessments they are triage assessments so they're brief but they do try and capture um what people are experiencing you know and if they're kind of if they're coming out sort of mild to moderate 
then they will be given the lower intensity which is only about six sessions now if someone's appropriate for six sessions it works perfectly you know it really does help people but it's not therapy it's more about it's almost like the person delivering it is a bit more of a life coach you know they're more of a teacher than a facilitator of change they're really about teaching cognitive behavior behavioral strategies to enable people to kind of overcome common symptoms of, of low mood depression so, may, so maybe ways to uh get out mm-hmm. of your head if mm-hmm. you're if you're engaging in a lot of compulsive mm-hmm. negative thinking but mm-hmm. you're not somebody who is chemically clinically depressed mm-hmm. is it, it, it would that be fair to say so say, say that again. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it would be appropriate for somebody who uh, maybe was raised uh, in, in a household where mm-hmm. uh, there it was just very negative, yeah, and yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. there wasn't a, a chemical yeah. clinical depression oh, okay. in them. It was j- just a way of viewing the world and not being mindful, yeah. being trapped in the future or the or, yeah. or the past. Yeah, and so um, just a kind of like almost like reading an Eckhart Tolle mm-hmm. book where yeah, you. Yeah. You, it recenters you. It's a kind of like a self-help, I guess, at that level, you know, but it's got someone kind of meeting with you fortnightly to kind of help that out. Now, it does work for a lot of people, but it's not going to really work for people who have more complex needs. You know, it doesn't seem like it will work for somebody who has a traumatic childhood. Definitely not. Definitely not. You know, um, that's not to say that people who have had traumatic childhoods can't access that type of help if they've processed it already Mm -hmm. and that's the difference if someone comes into the service and they've had a trauma and it's not being processed then they won't be appropriate for our short-term therapy that we can offer um so what might they get they would then be referred uh signposted we have a lot of really good organizations particularly in my area and we are affiliated to a few of the mental health charities as well so personally i will find something for someone else if 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 our model won't fit and there's a lot of specialized organizations out there that will help so is this mm-hmm. then going outside the nhs yes yeah but you are paid by the nhs yes. so you mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. just kind of uh will uh, what's, what's the we're allowed to signpost we're in, you that's know, what yeah, you call it signposting. Yeah, signposting or referring there's a lot of organizations that we have to make the direct referral now uh, which is good which is better you and know. so it's free the thing that you're referring them to or a low lot cost? a lot of them are yeah a lot of the specific ones so if there's particular ones about sexual abuse that it's free it's free therapy um if it's about domestic violence it's free therapy as well but there's also organizations which will do sliding scales so if um someone doesn't earn a lot of money they can pay a minimal low cost amount um if you earn a bit more you can pay a little bit more but there, there are a lot of places that are really reasonable as well particularly in my area and it is getting better and better in terms of provision um, and your area is the midlands yeah yeah okay. um i it would i guess it's hard for me to kind of know exactly the kind of background of the people that have said about the kind of only getting limited amount of sessions as well, well. one was a kid that mm-hmm. i uh mm-hmm. interviewed yesterday oh, okay. and he's 19 mm-hmm. uh he lives uh in manchester mm-hmm. and both his parents drank themselves to death when mm-hmm. he was eight years old and he's only been cleared for five yeah therapies through the nhs yeah see the service I work for wouldn't offer him support because it we'd know I know from now it wouldn't be enough for him you know mm-hmm. it would be more longer term so we would work to find you would uh, refer help refer yeah. him to some place that's long term yeah I would prefer I would refer 
particularly his age as well Um, and he has uh, mm -hmm. anxiety that uh, where he would almost black out from panic attacks five sessions for someone in that position and I'm taking that they haven't had any therapy to process the stuff they've been through no I would yeah I would I would say that five sessions is appalling really you know you're not going to be able to do much in five seconds five sessions rather you know you uh, this is when people sadly we get I don't know whether I should be saying this, but sadly we get kind of um, other health professionals not quite understanding the service that we offer and will and think we're a kind of curatorial kind of service. So they will refer people into us and then it's almost our job to kind of have to say no to people. But the way I always kind of try and express it is we could offer you therapy, but it's probably not really going to do a lot of difference because you've got all of this trauma or unprocessed stuff going on. Um, it could cause more damage more harm than good because you imagine if you've got five sessions and it takes them five sessions to open up mm-hmm. what do you do then bye you know sorry you've had your number it's really dangerous or you have a therapist mm-hmm. uh, maybe really who um, doesn't specialize in trauma and yeah. doesn't have the compassion yeah. that somebody mm-hmm. needs Definitely. i mean that that mm-hmm. i think is so hugely important because mm-hmm. the you know, as you know, when that person comes into therapy, they're mm-hmm. already doubting yeah. the definitely the, yeah. their their own mm-hmm. experience, doubting their opinion about it, thinking they're making too big of a deal about it. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. if you get somebody that isn't compassionate, exactly. it confirms all yeah. of the myths you have yeah, in definitely. your in your head. So, mm-hmm. what for any of our UK listeners out there who have felt let down by the system mm-hmm. and want more sessions mm-hmm. um, or to be connected to somebody who feels more appropriate for them, mm-hmm. what are their avenues? Yeah, I mean, the options would be to look for local organizations or, you know, or, I mean, if you did come to the service that I work through, you know, we do signpost and we do have a catalogue of all the different organizations on where you can go. And any good therapist within our organization would make a very informed Mm. decision about what is, what is the right decision. Um, An example, sorry. Uh, Are are you comfortable sharing the organization you work for or would you prefer to keep that anonymous? Because probably anonymous. Yeah, okay. yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, for example, I mean, an example, I guess, um, a friend of mine had a traumatic experience when she was in her teens. Uh, she was a victim of rape. And uh, she's in her late mid-30s now, and she's only just kind of coming to a point where she really wants to talk about it. And I advised her where to go. I said, don't come to our organization because we won't be able to offer you therapy. A, it needs longer than the sessions that can be off- offered. B, um, there aren't specialist people within our organisation who specifically deal with that kind of thing. These are the organisations to go to. And she was like, okay, cool. She ended up going to her doctor and her doctor <laughs> referred her to our organisation. <laughs> which um i was very annoyed about so anyway she thankfully had a really uh, she had she had a very good assessment by someone and they did exactly what i would have done they they centered the organization i'd originally suggested she go to (laughs) (laughs) okay but you know 
I would say any therapist within my organisation that I work for, I would like to think they are all very well trained and very good and they will be very transparent. My idea is always to be very transparent with people and tell them what you can and can't do. You know, there's mm. no point bullshitting people because it's not going to give them much confidence you know no and most of them roll in with no trust in humanity exactly. to begin with so if you're gonna bullshit them and you know not give them that kind of compassion and and get and enable them to gain trust then you you know you might as well not be a therapist um but i think you just have to be really careful in what you can and cannot offer and know your limitations as a therapist as well so let's say you live in uh london mm-hmm and you have experienced trauma mm-hmm. and you haven't gotten anywhere with the NHS, who mm-hmm. could you contact? You would just, mm-hmm. your neighborhood, London in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what, maybe w- what we could do when this episode airs is you could mm-hmm. give me maybe uh, uh, the website or the phone numbers mm-hmm. of a couple of places that okay. people could look into mm-hmm. If yeah. they're feeling frustrated yeah. by it, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it, you could do it by area or mm-hmm. just in general. But whatever, whatever yeah. you could do, I would love mm-hmm. to have a place to be able to point people yeah. in the UK that are feeling mm-hmm. frustrated and, and, yeah. and mm-hmm. left left yeah. out. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I imagine you would be okay with me also forwarding an email to you if it's yeah. specific has specific yeah. specific questions or yeah, they want definitely. to share something with yeah. you. I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Um, I was going to say something then, and it's kind of gone out my head. <laughs> so. You're going to say you like my haircut? I love your haircut. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, had a, I had a feeling. I had a feeling. It, 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 I got the gel really working today. <laughs> Just, you've nailed it. Yeah. Um, anything else that you'd like to... Uh, oh, there's loads. There's <laughs> loads and not enough time. Um there was something, but it's got it's totally gone. You know, when I leave here today, I'll go. That's what I wanted to say. Well, you know, I'm sure I will be back in the UK yeah. uh, again, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you and I will stay in touch, mm-hmm. and uh, we can we can always do it again. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Many many thanks to uh, to Louise. Uh, again, that's a pseudonym. Uh, when I get those uh, the list of those resources from her, I will throw that up on the uh, show notes for this episode. Uh, this episode will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show. Uh, and I got an update from a JT who uh, I had mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, I had connected Claire with, and he is still kind of bouncing around the NHS, um, trying, kind of falling between the cracks because um, he falls, in in the opinion of the NHS, between um, short-term care, uh, not being enough for him, but uh, him not being, have, having a panic uh, disorder bad enough to qualify for long-term care, and he's out in public having panic attacks, and... Uh, Oh man, it's uh, it's it is hard not getting angry at uh, healthcare systems uh, when you see how much money uh, is spent on other stuff in our societies. Anyway, I'm not going to go off on a uh, a rant. Oh, and one other thing I forgot to add is the uh, if you want to do the raffle, um, have your guess in 
by Wednesday of next week. So that would be the 17th. Um, yeah. I want to tell you about uh, one of our sponsors, Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. And if you're a listener to this podcast, probably half your life on it. Uh, free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash mental and using the offer code mental. So once again, go to casper.com slash mental and use the offer code mental. Terms and conditions apply. I'm going to mix it up a little bit tonight. Um, you know, I, t- I talked in the beginning of the episode that I've been just feeling a little bit uh, stressed out uh, lately, and I didn't. Um, I just didn't kind of have the uh, the will to go through really dark surveys um, this week. And um, so I've just been kind of going towards the stuff that uh, is a little lighter or I've been just drifting lately towards the happy moments and the awfulsome moments. And those of you that enjoy the really dark surveys, I I will come back to them. Um, I just need a little break because I don't want to get burned out doing doing this show. And one of the things I've learned in recovery is that uh, listen to your body. And when you start to find yourself actively not wanting to do something, uh, ask yourself, um, do I need to force myself to do this or would it be good to listen to uh, what my battery in my body is, uh, is telling me? I'm a C battery, by the way, and you put it in my rectum. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by, I'm very impressed with myself that I didn't hate myself for that joke and mention that I want to uh, go rewind and erase it. This is a happy moment filled out by current address rock bottom. And she writes, 2017 has been a very bad year for me. I've been suffering from severe depression, ended a long-term relationship, and this week I was laid off from a job I love. After I found out about the job, I sobbed and called a close friend for support. He let me cry and validated my sadness and pain, but also tried to make me smile. He then insisted that I not be at home alone that night, and he and his girlfriend took me out to dinner at one of our favorite restaurants. We talked about all the good things that that could come in the future and all laughed at how awful this year has been. I have never felt so loved and cared for, and it made the hopelessness a little more bearable. It was exactly what I needed at that time, and I feel very lucky to have such wonderful friends. Um, that's beautiful. And, you know, the thing I want to also add is that you gave your friends a chance to love you, and I'm sure that made them feel better as well because they've got that awesome feeling of helping, being able to show somebody their love. You know, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is allowing somebody to love you because that feels good to them, assuming it's a healthy love. 
Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Better search function on the website. It often does not yield many results. It's hard to search for a topic when it is in the title or description of an episode. Thank you for sharing that. And I will, you know, because the, the podcast does not have much of a budget, um, I, I have to be judicious in the things I pay a web person to do to help with the website. So uh, I am aware that the search functions are not that great on it. Um, scrolling between episodes can be difficult. Um, so um, just bear with me. It's a, we're a, we're a shoestring uh, operation. All right. This is an awful moment filled out by Scarface. And uh, she writes, My parents divorced when I was four, and I lived primarily with my mother in Chicago from then on. The first year after the divorce, she babysat cops' kids to make ends meet and to keep an eye on me. This was her second divorce. Her first husband had been a French doctor who became a citizen when they married in 1970, and they lived in one of the wealthiest suburbs of Chicago. I don't know much about their divorce, but when I was in college, my mother told me about something that her first husband gave her when they decided to separate. He told her that he would be deported and lose his medical license if he was found with this thing. So she agreed to hold on to it until he came back for it. He never did. So she just kept it. Uh, she just kept it with her from house to apartment to house for two decades. It was a brick of cocaine. 1970s French doctor, Chicago suburb cocaine that was just a room away from cops' kids. She didn't tell me about it until she flushed it. And as I was just about to graduate, I was so mad that she hadn't sold it to cover my tuition. That might be Hall of Fame. Thank you for that. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by don't touch me, but please hug me. And she writes, uh, recognizing a complete shift in my mindset since taking antidepressants. My brain is no longer overthinking everything. I'm no longer irritable all the time and I'm super pleased. I decided to take them despite my initial reservations. You know, it doesn't, it, it does not hurt to try, you know, just to investigate so then you can make an informed decision. Um, so many people spend their lives suffering because their pride or ego won't let them even investigate uh, something. And, you know, I'm not pro-med, but I am pro not ruling out things before you try them. And, you know, people say, but I don't want to have side effects. Well, what are the side effects of not being on a pill that may be your only chance at having uh, stability and being able to get out of bed and function, etc., etc. This is an awful moment filled up by Kay, and uh, she writes, This is the last time I spoke to my mother before cutting contact. I was 26, and all my life, whenever I failed to walk on eggshells, my mother would burst into tears and wail, It's like my only child has died. And I go into a frenzy to try to fix myself to heal her. Spring 2009, a cousin of mine died from cancer. Her dad is my great uncle. 
That Thanksgiving, the whole family had a huge get-together to celebrate the memory of my cousin. My mother didn't go. She was, quote, sick and always accused my family of turning me against her anyway. She told me it was okay with her if I went, so I did, and I had a great time. The next morning, we all went to my cousin's grave, and my great-uncle told her that it was like her spirit had been at Thanksgiving and that we're all happy that she's not in pain anymore, even though we miss her terribly. I assume that... The uncle was talking about the woman that that passed, not this woman's mom. Everyone was crying and hugging each other. Then I went back to my mother's house to find her lying on the floor, immobilized from crying. I went over to try to help her. Afraid she had actually hurt herself this time, she just sobbed, You abandoned me on Thanksgiving. It's like my child died. This time, something clicked. I explained that she had said it was okay for me to go without her, that I had just seen my great uncle at his own daughter's grave, and after seeing that, I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want her to talk about me as though I was dead again. That is the only time my mother kicked me out of her house, and I've never looked back. Thank you for sharing that. I love when people have epiphanies about toxic people in their lives. But so many people, again, like the, you know, like the med option, some people do, will not accept cutting a family member out of their life as an option. And I can't even imagine the amount of dysfunction that has been passed from generation to generation by that stupid fucking decision. Sorry, I just got a little angry there. You're free to do what you want. But I think it's fucking stupid if you keep somebody in your life who is making you miserable. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by Phoebe. And she writes, right now I'm in my head so much after that last sentence. I'm doing what I used to do in my house when I was a kid, which is after when I would get ready to say something, I would brace myself for all the ways it could get picked apart uh, by by my mom, um, not necessarily like you know, like she would come at it, you know, violently or super aggressively, but just poke. And I'm just always afraid that something I say today, it's like I have this anxiety that whatever I say is going to be poked at, and I'm going to be made to look stupid. Um. Anyway, continuing, Phoebe her happy moment. I can feel that I have physiologically changed in my body and brain. I can see and believe that my world won't end if something bad happens. I used to go to pieces and be paralyzed by fear of the what-ifs. Now I see multiple paths towards a bright future, happiness, peace, love, and daily presence, gratitude, and joy. If something does go wrong, then okay. What next? Maybe something good will come out of this. And if I slow down and think from a place of goodness and truth, I will find the answer or resource to help me move forward. I am strong and capable, and it feels good to finally believe it. I know what that feels like. and It makes every support group meeting, every therapy visit, every fetal position, every bit of journaling absolutely worth it. That freedom and that um, ability to look at life positively instead of something to endure. Um, it is possible. That's why I started this podcast. This is an awful moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls themselves uh, Stephanie. 
And they write, my stepmom started putting me on diets beginning in first grade. She closely monitored everything I ate and weighed me weekly to measure my, quote, progress. She put me on diet pills. Yeah, the speed kind. By the time I was 10. And when confronted for the first time by several family members about her behavior, she responded, you know what? Everyone keeps saying if I keep picking on her about her weight, she's going to get an eating disorder. Well, it hasn't worked yet. To which they all burst into laughter. Wow. Uh, I assume that means that uh, that you hadn't got an eating disorder uh, and, and that your uh, mother was disappointed in that. Um, fuck. Unreal. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Mere Muse. And uh, they write, I got a birthday card from my parents for the first time as an adult. I turned 43 weeks ago. The card said, happy birthday. Don't forget your father's birthday is in three weeks. Then underlined, it said, his is special. <laughs> That's so fucked up. Oh, my God. And special is in uh, caps. <laughs> happy birthday. Don't forget your father's is in three weeks. His is special. Wow. Wow. This is filled out by RivkaBlue14, and uh, she writes, My stepfather, who was our abuser when we were children, recently tried to commit suicide by trying to climb out of their second-story window. My mom walked in and saw him hanging out of the window, tackled him, and called for my sister, who was downstairs with her two small children. My sister had to run upstairs and physically remove him from the window. He later admitted during the police evaluation that he had done it for attention. After admitting to having done it for attention, my sister and I have decided that enough abuse and manipulation is enough, and we have mostly cut contact excuse me, with my mom and stepfather. My sister and I gave my mom an ultimatum the day this happened. Either she leave him or she will not be able to have us and her grandchildren around. She decided to keep him around anyway and is still trying to have a relationship and, quote, normalize his behavior as she has done countless other times. The kicker here is my mom is a licensed social worker who has been working with veterans at the VA and working as an addiction therapist for over two decades. Anyway, here's what I thought was awfulsome about this. Besides the shitty situation my family is in in its entirety, it's kind of shitty when your therapist mom tries to counsel you and give you advice as a therapist on how to deal with the abuse and toxicity that she has contributed to and how to deal with the abuser she is letting stay. She actually said to me after telling her that I don't want any part of his life anymore, hey, I am sorry you are hurting. I think you should read the book called Toxic Parents, Overcoming Their Hurtful Legacy and Taking Control of Your Life. Maybe it'll help you feel better. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, and that, to me, speaks of the power of probably love addiction, that her mother is so afraid of being alone, or codependency, that her mother thinks that she can will people into liking liking each other, getting along with each other. Um, at my support group tonight, the topic was powerlessness. And, you know, we were talking about how 
powerlessness is viewed in our society as a negative when really it is the route to sanity. Think of how many people destroy their lives and other people's lives because they can't accept that they're powerless over some something or somebody or someplace. Somebody who can't accept that somebody no longer loves them. Um, somebody who can't accept that their child isn't, you know, a fantastic athlete. Um, somebody who can't accept that they might need to take meds and we don't surrender to that and we live in this state of insanity of wishing it were different and working ourselves up into a state of anger and resentment at reality but instead usually projecting it onto ourselves with self-hatred or blaming somebody for it and to get sober I had to take a really hard look at how much I was trying to control in my life that was uncontrollable. What other people thought of me, um, whether or not I get hired in my line of work, um, things that my body does, getting sick, having depression. And over the last 14 years, I've had to make peace um, one time or another with all of those things. And I realized that surrendering to the truth of powerlessness is not a weakness, it's freedom. You know, it's it's one of the basic tenets of Buddhism is to let go and stop trying to will everything. You know, the American dream has been twisted into this thing of, you know, yourself, you can will anything to happen. Um, yeah, maybe on some level you can will things to happen, but what is the price what is the price of, you know, verbally abusing people to get them to do what you want, of cutting corners ethically, of um, subjecting, uh, you know, trying to force people to interact with each other because you want them to get along, um, on and on and on and on. Um this is a vacation argument uh, survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Aw Hell No. And she writes, um, We had just unpacked our things for a long weekend at my father-in-law's lake house when he started in picking on me about politics. I pointed out that without state health care, my husband, his son, would not be able to get treatment for his autoimmune disease. He then informed me my husband was a hypochondriac and isn't sick. My husband had said his father didn't believe he was sick, but hearing it broke my brain. I wish he wasn't, but assure you, he is. This was the straw that broke my back, and I got angry. Then he laughed, and I flew into a blind rage. After saying some truly hurtful things about what a crappy father I know he was, I threw my cup off the deck, past my confused husband who was grilling through all of this. I said, get your shit packed. We're getting the fuck out of here. Confused as to why I was suddenly tearing his father's house up, my husband made the mistake of grabbing my hands and trying to get me to stop. I cannot be touched in this state and clocked the shit out of him with my dirty sandals. Poor guy is still trying to hold on to me till I broke free and punched him in the side of the head. I beat up my husband in a rage caused 
by my defense of him. I understand that makes no sense whatsoever. I feel super bad about it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I got angry hearing your father-in-law. That that fucking trope of people who don't don't want to admit that there is a spiritual, mental, physical crisis in this country. And ironically, the people who are quote unquote, you know, the holiest are are so often the people who are the biggest money worshipers, the the biggest stigmatizers of asking for help and being vulnerable. And I don't want to go off on a on a rant here, but um I don't know if it can get much worse than um I think everybody's on edge because we are uh this country is being led by some truly, truly sick people. And um if that upsets you uh that I said that uh I'm not going to apologize because it is the truth. Um and I can't even watch the news. I can't even watch the news. Watching millionaires discount the need for real healthcare system changes. You know, and talking about future jobs. (laughs) Well, isn't the purpose of a job to be able to pay for things to keep you healthy? What good is a job if you're catatonic because you don't have mental health coverage? (sighs) Deep breath. I'm powerless. I am powerless over those people. And that's, that is probably the hardest thing for me to accept is that there are people in this world who are even bigger hypocrites than I am. Because I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite about a ton of things. I'm faced with it all the time. All the time. But knowing that I can be a hypocrite is the very thing that helps me hate, let go of my temporary hatred of people that I see as hypocrites because if it's hard to really hate somebody for something that you have looked inside yourself and seen. And I wish I could feel more compassion for people who are addicted to money and power and don't give a shit about the downtrodden. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And um, anyway, I wanted to mix it up a little bit. And I wanted to read, this is from a survey we retired probably three years ago. It was the Mental Illness Happy Hour Basic Survey. And one of the questions on it, for some reason, I just thought, you know what? I would like to read some of the answers to this. Um, and so I went back in it and... Um, 
The question is, if there is a God, what are some things you would say to God? And I just want to read you just one page, 25 responses, each from a different person, to the question, if there is a God, what are some of the things you would say to God? I beg for the power to recognize in myself the strength and worthiness to change. Please help people understand we are all in this world together. Nature gives us enough problems. We don't have to cause problems for ourselves. Nothing. There isn't one. Why did you choose to put me in the life you did? Why specifically my town, family, etc.? That's a great one. Uh, you did the best you could with the hand you were dealt. Are they saying that to God? Because that's interesting. That sounds like that would mean that some other power had dealt God this. And wouldn't that then make God not God? Maybe there's maybe there's that's what they maybe they mistook it that that's what they wanted to hear from God to them about their life. I'll, I'll look into this. I'll get a private investigator on this and get back to you. Uh, dear God, why in the fuck is there so much freaking violence and hate? To which God would say, Why did you say fuck and then say freaking? I think this person realized, said, Dear God, why in the fuck? And then went, Oh my God, I just said fuck to God. I better say freaking if I'm going to say fuck again. Uh, why do I need to feel so conflicted about my sexuality? Why do I feel this way? Uh, I, have a, I have a belief uh, because society has unnecessarily shamed you because they themselves have been shamed about theirs. And they're passing it like a horrible hot potato from generation to generation. Um, this is a great question. Hey, God, how'd you come up with synapses? Uh, I don't think that there is one. If there is, I don't think he is concerned with the stupid affairs of people and their bullshit. I'm a scientist and I would ask him or her about the nature, about nature and the universe. But aren't we part of that? If we're made up of particles from the universe, aren't we a part of it? Aren't we a part of nature? Sure, we fucked up nature more than any other uh, species. Uh, this one's kind of beautifully heartbreaking and simple. This person says, please love me. Uh, this person says, why do you give us so much control? What would be so bad about a perfect world? I think about that sometimes. And then I think, if you didn't feel pain, how you wouldn't be able to experience pleasure as intensely. You know, it would be like water to a fish. Perfection would just feel like water to a fish. You wouldn't. I think we need the, the vicissitudes to truly experience things. Um screw you for making me this way and letting me feel all this crap I'm sure you are enjoying this you asshole just kill me now and let's end this charade that is my life you sound like you're in a lot of pain and I'm, I'm sorry that you are feeling that way um, that was five years ago that this person filled that out and I hope you're I hope you're feeling better 
Uh, all the typical questions like why would you allow there to be hunger or war and why would you allow your followers to persecute people just for being who they are. Uh, I would ask him to take me. I don't want to have to do this anymore. Do I really have to go to Mass this morning? I tend to believe that if there is a higher power or a God or a sentient something, it would look at the majority of people speaking in its name and say, uh, you can skip that Mass every morning. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of masses that it would say, yes, go there. They they get it. And I think there's a lot where they would go, that person is really off message. Uh, I don't believe in a God. Uh, hey, how about killing off the idiots? Uh, why the hell did you create a screwed up human race? Why are people like this? Why did you make me this way? Why did you let this happen? What lesson did I have to learn in such a mean, heartless way? Why me? Why them? Why? Thanks. I know things are rough right now, but I'm glad you're keeping your hands out of all the mix. If I didn't go through all of this stuff, I might not be the person I am today. And after all is said and done, I'm pretty lucky. And then and then they continue... Please stop Jenny McCarthy from spreading her ignorance regarding autism, though. My parents can only take so much, and you really don't want me to get all yelly if I ever meet her. <laughs> I think I have to end on that one. I think I have to end on that one. Um, not the end of the show, just the end of reading the, uh, if there is a God, what would you say to God? Um, this is an awful moment filled out by at least two standard deviations below average. And uh, he writes, I didn't date much in college. I was fixated on the TV show Northern Exposure, and I used to walk around Radford University in Virginia wearing a green Northern Exposure-themed sweatshirt and matching hat. I stayed in my dorm room all the time watching TV, jerking off and reading novels instead of doing any homework whatsoever. In short, I couldn't have gotten laid in a monkey whorehouse with a fistful of bananas. Jesus must have felt sorry for me because a girl who lived on my hall in the dorm miraculously expressed interest in me during the end of my one-year stint at this school. I ended up going home with her for the weekend. I slept in a guest bedroom. The, this girl and I never had sex. We barely kissed. Anyway, I have a very delicate stomach, and the whole situation made me very nervous. I hadn't defecated in three days, and all I really wanted to do was go the hell home. Before dinner, I'd mentioned that I wasn't fearing, feeling very well, and the mother gave me some milk of magnesia. Well, let me just say, when that shit kicked in, it kicked in. I was sitting at the dinner table, and suddenly I knew I had to get to a bathroom, or I was going to shit my pants. I had maybe 20 seconds tops. I felt cold, clammy, yet sweat dripped from my forehead. There was a downstairs half-bathroom adjacent to their dining room. I had zero time to escape an upstairs toilet with more privacy. As soon as I closed the door and my pants barely cleared my asshole, I unleashed a Hiroshima-like shit explosion. Paul, I murdered that bathroom. I remember resting my forehead on the cool porcelain of the sink when the mother knocked on the bathroom door and said, I'm going to slide a paper napkin to you under the door. 
we're out of toilet paper. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I had a friend one time who had a huge crush on this girl, and he was at her house. I think he was, I think we were like in eighth grade, and he had to take a shit, and he went in their bathroom, and he flushed and nothing happened. <laughs> so he got a bunch of toilet paper, and he scooped it up, and he ran with it to the other bathroom, and he did not get caught. Can you imagine if you got, you bumped into somebody from the family with your own poop wrapped like a, like a horrible wedding ring in a bunch of fluffy toilet paper? Um, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, Alexis, and I'm fine today. And she writes, I've been in the throes of a pretty bad depressive episode. For the last week, I've had to try to convince myself to leave my bed. Yesterday, I couldn't manage it, and an ocean of self-loathing threatened to swallow me again today. Fuck you, depression. This morning, I practically belittled myself in my depression until I was dressed and out the door. I was determined to at least see the sunrise on a short bike ride like I so love to do. Once I did that, I could get back in bed and continue my self-help YouTube video spiral of loneliness. I was feeling like dog shit on the ride, and all I wanted to do was to turn around and go back. I guess a week in bed stuffing my face with ice cream isn't great for car cardio, but I didn't. And on my way back, I almost ran over this turtle who was trying his best to cross the road. This guy had no chance. People are fucking crazy when they drive through here. My neighbor cycles a lot, and he was hit last week by some fuckhead who opened his car door and was sent flying to the ditch below. That wasn't even the first time it had happened. So yeah, Raphael here didn't stand a goddamn chance. I got off my bike, picked him up, and moved him safely to the other side of the road. I got back on my bike and went home, hoping the dumb fuck didn't just turn around and try to cross the street again. Anyway, it's a good day. I struggle with suicidal thoughts, and when I'm in that place, it's hard to think my life matters. But this morning, I was reminded that every day I choose to be alive, I have the potential to help someone, and maybe make the world suck just a little less. Here's to you, Raphael. Stay off the streets. That is just such a beautiful one, man. I think so many of us relate to that really, really deeply because it's, there's nothing dramatic about it. It's just that groundhog day of please, please universe, just give me a little reprieve today. Even if it's just for an hour, just let me feel something other than dread and self-hatred. Any comments to make the podcast better? Talk less about how much you hate yourself and more about St. Herbert's butthole. Um, St. Herbert's butthole, by the way, um, it has been reported. There are reports coming from heaven that it can be mistaken for a halo when he is behind somebody. That I want to go back and rewind. This is a happy moment filled out by Tilia. And um, 
Talia. After a rape in college, um, that's a, a way to start out a happy moment, uh, I ended up transferring and finishing at another school, partly out of protest and partly because I didn't like the idea of looking over my shoulder at every turn. I started at my new school the following fall. It was a culture shock from a tiny private college of 700 to a state school of 10 to 12,000 students. I didn't know a soul, and the first month it was, what the fuck have I done? I did everything from stress eating uh, to running 30 miles a week and killing my knees and ruminating. What the hell was I thinking? A good friend from my old school moved out my way a few weeks later, and we connected over a bowl of kiwis. It was then that my attitude changed. Damn, this is awesome. I started a list of little things I appreciated about my new location, the banal, like a new favorite tea at a local cafe, that pretty waterfall next to my house, people I've met. The obvious, like not having to be in stealth mode outside my home. The awfulsome, watching your friend run around a bunch of Bible bangers gobbling like a turkey and confusing them, and everything else in between. Within a few months, that list exceeded 500 items. Whenever I had a spell of, what the fuck did I, I do that for, I had several hundred answers. That was eight years ago. And to this day, midway through my PhD, I still think that changing schools as an undergrad was the best life decision I ever made. I wouldn't have my husband or the best friend I've ever had. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I was just saying yesterday that it's been my experience and the experience of a lot of other people that the scarier the self-care decision we make for ourselves, the it seems like the more profound of a positive change it has in our lives. Like it creates this momentum for healing and self-advocating, um, you know, and, and doing something like that, that big move to protect yourself. Um, it, it sounds like that... That really, uh, I don't know, I ran out of words. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Crisula Ovada or Crassula Ovada. You guys are so smarty pants. Uh, they're non-binary and they write, this is a bit convoluted, so bear with me. I was listening to the podcast, the episode with Rhonda Britton, and I had to pause the episode the second she said goodbye to write my thoughts out and try and understand what I was feeling. Here's what I wrote. Towards the end, as I listened, all I felt was fear. Because I don't have the energy to do that. I don't have the means to fight for myself. I don't have the means to believe I'm someone worth fighting for. If you're either living or dying, am I doomed to spend my whole life dying because I don't have the strength or knowledge to know how to live? I chose to stop hurting myself because I want to be someone who's trying. I chose to feed, listen to, and look after myself because I know there is still that child hurting in me and I want to be someone who cares. Ever since I gained a sense of self, all I have known is self-destruction because I know I am guilty. And so I punish and punish and punish myself because if I don't, then there is no justice there are no consequences, and I am wrong, bad, and unforgivable. 
As I finished writing that, I realized how much guilt and shame I was carrying. I became horrible to her. Awful. Abusive. Oh, how much guilt and shame I was carrying. I became overwhelmed with the thought of my 14-year-old sister. She was a child who was ill often, and I was an emetophobic teen. Emetophobic means uh, fear of um, vomiting or, I believe, seeing uh, vomit. Um, I was horrible to her, awful, abusive. I would scream at her and shun her and slap her. For years, every time she was ill, I was in pain, uh, debilitating fear and fury that she would put me through this. I knew it wasn't her fault, so I hated myself. My parents' anger and blame at my reaction did nothing but compound the shame and guilt. When these thoughts bubbled up, I knew there was something I needed to do. I pulled myself off the ground and walked myself downstairs and up to my little sister. I asked if we could talk, and then I looked her in the eye and held her hand and said I was sorry, that I felt guilt and shame every day over the way I had treated her, that I was so, so sorry I had been so merciless and awful, that I had never hated her, that I loved her and was acting out through fear. We were both crying at this point, and she kept trying to tell me it was okay. I told her she's an amazing, wonderful person who is worth fighting for, even though she struggles to see it, and that I am so very proud of her. And she told me I hadn't been the person who tormented her in a long time. We hugged, both of us in tears, and in that moment, I knew that I could let go of some of that shame. Because my sister is right, I am no longer that person. I am today a person who is striving to better myself, a person who is doing their best. I am a person who is strong enough to apologize and cry and love my sister. And if nothing else, I am willing to fight for the part of me that can do that. Today I found some hope, some vulnerability, and some forgiveness for myself. I know it's only a start, but I wanted to share this with you. Because without this podcast, I would never have had the emotional knowledge and strength to do what I did today. A week ago, I was seven pills into 40 before realizing what I was doing. And I'm working on asking for help. But right now, right now, I am grateful. I am fighting. I am alive. As one of the most beautiful things I've read on the podcast... And I assume that last sentence, you mean that you're struggling with an addiction to pills. Um, and I do hope you get help because um, you're worth it and people can get sober if they're willing to put the effort in on a consistent basis and stay rigorously honest with themselves and... Um, and allow people to love them. I was so uncomfortable when I first got sober with letting people love me. I thought, don't you know? Can't you see what a piece of shit I am? And today I know I'm not a piece of shit. Yeah, I'm a flawed human being. But I'm a good guy. And I'm proud of 
a lot of stuff I do today. Um, I second guess the fuck out of myself, but, um, you know, when I get, read a survey like that or an email like that, um, I remember that I'm not invisible, that I can affect people's lives positively, um, even the smallest of things, you know, saying something nice to somebody in line. Um, letting somebody go in front of me in traffic. Those are those are important little things in my day, because that creates that momentum that helps me not hate myself. Uh, I'm not ready to say love myself. No, fuck it. I do love myself, and um, that's there for any of you that are out there and feeling like you will never get to a place of peace or not hating yourself. And it is doable, but we have to connect to other people. We have to ask for help. And before you know it, you will enjoy the friendship of people, like you've heard in some of the surveys. Having friends who are there for you. And um, I hope you heard something that helped you tonight or inspired you. And uh, I'm so grateful for those of you that helped make this podcast um, possible um, because I couldn't do it without you. And never forget that you are not alone. And uh, thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.